Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine give us some fascinating insight into the direction of the Canucks. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet <laughs> 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, insider Thomas Drance here. You can also read Drance's work covering the team at the Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. Just a handful of things to discuss oh. and chew on after yesterday's presser there, Drancer. They may have started talking at 1.15 p.m., but it was high noon at Rogers Arena last night or yesterday afternoon when Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvine met the press. I expected something conservative, pedestrian, uh, something that gave them some wiggle room to go in a number of directions this offseason. And instead, what we got was an exhibition in command presence. Uh, an exhibition in in a willingness to do what's unpopular and a demonstration of, you know, a hockey executive in Jim Rutherford who's done it all, seen it all, knows that he's the boss and is so focused on process ahead of results, clearly, that, you know, he's willing to you know, I don't want to say take a step back, but he's willing to throw sentiment, um, uh, like emotional decisions, uh, emotion. He's willing to throw all of that to the side to do it the right way. There's a, There was an understanding clearly exhibited there that the wrong thing or the wrong thing done, uh, the right thing done the wrong way is still the wrong thing. And to hear that level of ambition and clarity from a Canucks executive almost gave me whiplash. Yeah, it, it just it was such a distinct moment from a franchise that it feels like has dis- spent so long dissembling, has spent so long pointing at solely the good things, at whatever's shiny, uh, whatever could be a source of optimism was was a source of optimism officially, and all of a sudden you've got you know a coach who performed to a hundred and six point pace uh, in Bruce Boudreau, you know we're not going to negotiate with him. Period. Period. You know it, we've got. He can work the year out on his option. And by the way, this is the exact date of the option. So hopefully we know before and, and maybe we won't, right? Um, you know, yeah, we, we won games, but our goalie, oh boy, he stole almost he, all of them. Probably probably 50%, I think, was what Jim Rutherford said of the wins were because of the goalie. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, just direct. Put it out there. I mean, I mean, sounds, sounds like he could host the Canucks Hour. Incredible. And then... You know, but also structure, a, a lack of zone exits. Literally, we had a punt and hunt discussion in the Canucks season ending availabilities, which was incredible. Um, let's come back to that because that's funny. I, I, yeah, we'll, we'll run we, through it all. But yeah, it, it was the scale of the ambition. For me, one of the most telling moments of the availability was our good friend Brendan Batchelor, great play by play caller, starts to ask a question. And it's about the American League. Or no, sorry. Someone had asked Someone had Rutherford asked Al- and Alvin yeah. about the American League. And Batch starts to ask a question on Pod Colson in the American League, and Rutherford interrupts him politely, right? He's not like he's not like shut up, Batch. He's like, hey, what one sec. I want to come back to this. And he comes back and talks about how he thinks in Abbotsford there is the potential to build the best organization in the American League. The best. Well, you know what? One thing this organization hasn't done nearly enough of over the last decade, Jamie? Is just talk about being the best. It's just aim to be the best. Well, you need to be the best. You need to aim to be the best in hockey, right? You're, 
you're not going to get 100% of your goals. So if your goal is to miss the playoffs, well, you're going to be 26th. You're going to be 19th every year, like clockwork, like this organization has been. If you don't aim for the top, you're not getting close. Like, you're, you're probably not getting to where you want to go. The Stanley Cup's really hard to win. But if you're not aiming for there, you're not going to be a top five team with a shot year after year that falls just short. You know, like, you, you, need, to, you need to aim high. The best. We want to be the best. Not we want to generate revenue and fan engagement in the Fraser Valley. Not we want to develop some good players. Not, you know, we want to play a similar system down there to what we play up here so that players are ready. Uh, you know, not we want to win games. We want to be the best. Give it to me. Mm-hmm. Give it to me. That's what this market deserves. That's what fans in this market deserve. It's been far too long since we heard it, and I loved hearing it yesterday at Rogers Room. And before we get into all of the specifics, and by the way, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Before we run through all of the specific talking points, and there's a lot of them and a lot of really interesting ones to come out of uh, both the press conference at Rogers Arena and then also Jim Rutherford's interview with Sat and Riccio on Canucks Central yesterday, my big picture takeaway, and you mentioned the word ambition there, and what I said on the People Show yesterday was just the idea of raising the bar. That That's what came across consistently listening to both Alvin and Rutherford, but especially Jim Rutherford. And I also thought... Yesterday was just a great kind of advertisement for the idea of hiring Jim Rutherford, right? Like, oh, yeah, this is why you hire a guy like Jim Rutherford or Jim Rutherford specifically to be your president of hockey operations because he's capable of so forcefully setting a direction uh, for your team in public like that. And I thought he did just an incredible job and really not that he needed to, you know, justify the hire or anything like that. But if anyone still had doubts, I think those should have been silenced yesterday by that performance. But Just back to the idea of operating with ambition. You know, you mentioned the AHL franchise. Even down to things like, hey, we're going to renovate the locker room because it helps with recruitment and it it helps the players who are currently here feel better about themselves. I mean, there's paint peeling in that locker room. You know, like, there's paint peeling on that locker room. So when you come back from the bubble experience and your team's a bottom 10 spender all of a sudden, having pulled the wool out or the rug out from under a group of players who sacrificed two months of their lives to live in a hermetically sealed bubble in Edmonton, you know? And then you're looking around the locker room and it hasn't been updated since 2009, which, by the way, has more to do with the Olympics having come to Vancouver than anything else in terms of uh, the team's focus at the time. Um, it's embarrassing. You know, like, you need, you need world-class facilities. You need to put players in a world-class environment. Uh, anyway, the sorry. practice facility. But no, but you're right. Like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna renovate the locker room. We're doing that this summer. It's happening, Jim. Rutherford, it's not. Oh, we'll we'll try to get to that. We're down never the road. gonna talk in this room again. This is gonna be different. Yep. He, you're he getting said, a new room. Yeah. <laughs> I was surprised there wasn't a standing ovation from the. Uh, from the I like that room. Media. I'm gonna miss that room. Um, you know, he said they're really close to choosing a site for a practice facility. How long has that been a, a talking point or a pie-in-the-sky idea here for the Decades. Vancouver Canucks? Decades. Jim Rutherford's been here, what, five months? It's like, oh, yeah, that we're going to choose the site, like, really soon here. He's already getting things done like that. And to me, that's all about that ambition. And as you said, raising the bar and trying to be the best. Obviously trying to be the best on the ice, but creating the environment off the ice as well to try to be the best. And even when his comments, you know, and you mentioned him interrupting uh, Batch to to highlight the AHL efforts, I think it was the second question of the presser. Brendan Batchelor asked him, you know, did did what the team, did how the team performed down the stretch change your view of the team and their potential at all? 
And Batch couldn't even get the question out before Jim Rutherford jumped in. No, 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 it did not. We rely on our goalie too much. We don't have enough structure. Nothing they did down the stretch changed my opinion or my assessment of this team. And again... Me too, Jim. (laughs) Me too. Let's go. And to me, that again speaks to raising the bar. Not being satisfied with a... 57 uh, game stretch where you play at you know the 11th best points percentage in the NHL wanting to aim a lot higher than that so unfortunately my dream of a banner 11th best after the coaching change being raised on on day one is dead now unfortunately but the there's a clear-eyed view of the enormity of the task at hand that was on display right which is this organization needs a significant modernization in terms of how it functions. I think you've seen that too in the front office hires, right? I think we are going to continue to see that, by the way, in in terms of the scouting staff. And that was talked about a little bit. They, they answered questions on that, but weren't really prepared to speak to it. Meetings are going to be taking place in the next couple of weeks on both the pro and the amateur side, but I would expect changes after that, uh, most likely. The industry certainly is uh, feeling that way as well. So, you know, we'll see sort of where some of these things land, but... You know, I, I think there is a sense that Rutherford and Alvin showed up after the house cleaning and, you know, went went about sort of going to work on what they needed to to build to have a winning organization. And I think they, was, they weren't like, oh, we're in charge of this machinery now. They were like, oh, we have to rebuild this machinery. Like, I don't think people understand just how lean um, and out of date some of the way that this club operated was. Up to the point where, I don't know if you noticed this, this was sort of a subtle moment later in the availability, but Alvin made a comment about scouting reports not being filed correctly. It's like, you think he was talking about something specific? You think he was talking about something specific process-wise? There was a clear-eyed view at hand of what this organization needs and how far a distance it has to travel in terms of just modernizing the operation. New, new facilities at the game rink, a practice rink a best-in-class American League franchise, right? All of those sort of things dovetailed with this understanding, which was also demonstrated, that, you know, it's not enough to tweak the roster and bring back this coach who the fans, the ticket buyers, like, they chant his name. It's not enough to just do that and limp into the playoffs and, you know, be, be that team. That's, that's, that's done. Those are the old days. And thank goodness, by the way. It's about building something great. It's about building something that can win, that can, as as Rutherford put it, be a durable team that makes the playoffs year after year. And he, by the way, also set a pretty aggressive timeline for that goal, a couple of years. But he did set a goal down the line, right? It wasn't what he wanted to accomplish next season. It was, we want to be a team that makes the playoffs every year uh, in a couple of years. And I thought you heard from both Alvina and Rutherford a distinction between okay, we can make the playoffs next year. That's not a goal that's out of reach. And we can do that maybe with a couple of tweaks, but we also have additional goals beyond that. Like, yes, we want to get better next year. We want to make the playoffs next year, but that's not the ultimate goal. That's not what's going to satisfy us. We're focusing on larger things beyond that as well. I called him bringing up the uh, couple players in, couple players out thing yesterday, by the way. I just want (laughs) to... Yes. But the... Yeah, I mean, look, there are some things in there that if you have concerns as a fan... I, I hear you, right? One of them, for example, I mean, the biggest one is the the approach to Bruce Boudreaux. Yeah, let's get into the Boudreaux, because that was the, there's there's a lot to get into, but the Boudreaux news and the statement from Rutherford was the headline, and it was, it was fascinating listening to it in real time, 
because he gave a, such a straightforward, matter-of-fact answer saying, no, blink, we're not. Blink if you yes. miss it. And, I, and, I wasn't sure I'd understood him, and, so I went back and clarified, no, and he made fun and, of me. And I'm glad you did. <laughs> it was good. I'm glad you did clarify because I had the exact same reaction listening. I was like, wait, is that – did I get the full context there? Did I miss right. something? I wasn't is, sure. Is that exactly what he was saying? I wasn't sure if it was a negotiating position vis-a-vis we'd be comfortable having him back even if we can't agree to an extension or if it was a hard line – no, we're not extending him. And and I thought it was that we're not extending him, but I just wanted to make sure before well, I tweeted it. Well, that's such a bombshell, right? right? You have to really be sure, but that's what he's saying. By the way, kudos to David Quadrelli, who tweeted it yes. out immediately, because I was sitting there with that same rough tweet drafted, and I was like, I'm not tweeting this out until I know. You know, like, n- n- and not, no, no, by the way, Quadrelli was right. He quoted him exactly. I'm, I'm saying kudos to him for having the stones to do it. I legitimately was like... If I tweet this and get this wrong, I'm I'm never gonna hear the end of it. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna I'm just gonna clarify here and then in clarifying, of course, I I, I took some bullets from <laughs> from the Canucks president of hockey operations. So it goes. That's the job. With regards to the Boudreaux thing, right? It's hard to read this in any way other than that they're kind of daring him to leave. And when you combine all of the commentary, right? The structural criticisms, the criticisms that Alvin had to Ian McIntyre early in the earlier in the year about practice mm-hmm. habits, um, the zone exits thing, which we'll come back to again, and the um, you know if he wants to come back and work together on on some of the things that we want to accomplish, you know, sure, right? Like we're open to that, and 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 it should be noted too. Rutherford had a lot of praise for the work that he did, reinvigorating the core group and giving them an opportunity to evaluate these players and what he called meaningful games. After that, can we retire meaningful games? <laughs> no, it's never going away. Can we please stop? It's never going away. Meaningful games is the most mediocre aspiration I've ever heard of. Jamie. Jamie, it's like it's like I'm having a meaningful meal for lunch. It's like is it good? No, it's meaningful. It's meaningful. It, sustenance. So it's it's an absurd bar. Meaningful games, please leave leave everyone's hockey lexicon. Meaningful games is nothing. Anyway, with regards to those, all of that commentary, it felt like, and it was hard to interpret it in any other way, but that the team is daring Boudreaux to leave. However, you know, clearly are not going to exercise their side of the option before June 1st. So some of Boudreaux's contract is well understood, especially after yes. uh, Rutherford declared that there's a June 1 exercise deadline on both sides. But from what we understand from Elliot Friedman's reporting, it seems that uh, Boudreaux's contract, if the Canucks were to decide not to bring him back, would take care of take care of the the coach. Right? He would get a balloon payment of some kind. On the other side, however, it does seem that Boudreaux has an, has the ability to walk uh, walk away by June first, in which case he doesn't receive anything from the Canucks, but he could take another job. The Canucks are open to having him back. They said, despite being critical of of some things that certainly. Certainly, it didn't feel like they were pitching Bruce, right? If Bruce was the audience of that press conference, you'd think he'd walk away thinking, well, I can't wait to go back. Or do you think he'd be like, okay, this is going to be a hard decision? No, it was the phrase that got a lot of run yesterday was they put the ball in his court. And I think that's exactly right. They they very much changed it from a, how are they going to approach this decision to how is Bruce Boudreaux going to approach this decision, right? right? Is how, how much confidence does he have that he can get 
more than one year out there on the open market with another NHL team? And how desirable is it for him to come back to a situation where he doesn't have that security, but there are other positive things like he's coaching a in a Canadian market, a talented young core, he's a, loved. a city that's embraced him, right? There are other positives yeah. here. How does he weigh that versus the lack of security? And, security, and I would also say the the comments from Rutherford about you know we'd we'd like to have him back and work on some things together and look I'm not I, I'm not in Bruce Boudreaux's head but I can imagine you know he's one of the winningest coaches in NHL history right like I, I can imagine there would be kind of an instinctual reaction where you say you know what I actually know how to coach I, I actually don't need a lot of pointers on that right and I thought that was a really interesting comment like so it it definitely put the onus on Boudreaux to make a decision here, which going into this week was not really how we thought it was going to go. We thought mm-hmm. it was going to be, okay, they're going to try to figure out how to meet his demands or, or reach a negotiation, and now it's, well, how does Boudreaux want to play this? What what does he see uh, in his prospects around the league, and how is that going to impact his decision? Well, and I kind of disagree with you, but that's okay, because we can work together on your hosting abilities <laughs> um, here. <laughs> no, I don't disagree with you at all. I think that's well put. In terms of in terms of Boudreaux's decision now, right, it is, do you, do you weigh what's out there and then decide by June 1st? I think that's probably where this is going, right? Clearly, clearly, they are willing to have Boudreaux leave, right? That's, I mean, you, you don't handle this in any, put it this way, I would be very critical of the organization if their approach was that we do really want Boudreaux back yeah. and they handled it this way. I think that is wild. But it's clear that there's more going on, right? Clear. Crystal clear. If Boudreaux is back on a one-year deal, I don't love that. I will say. Now, Rutherford brought up the Sullivan example, the Mike Sullivan example. So Mike Sullivan was, um, well, let's go through this history quickly because there's a funny Canucks link. Of course, Mike Sullivan was an interim head coach for the Canucks after John Tortorella tried to fight the entire Calgary Flames, but mostly Bob Hartley that fateful night in 2014. But Sullivan and Tortorella were kicked to the curb by Trevor Linden in in one of his first acts as president of hockey operations. And Sullivan landed on the bench in the American League. When Sullivan was made the head coach of the Pittsburgh Penguins, the Vancouver Canucks, because remember, this was in the era where you got draft picks, draft pick compensation. The Canucks tried to get a draft pick for them promoting their own internal employee. From the Pittsburgh Penguins, which, by the way, like, good, good respect the hustle. And it was the it was that pursuit. It was the Canucks trying to get a draft pick for a player who was already within another organization getting promoted to the NHL level. By the letter of the law, by the way, they were right. The NHL shut it down and thereafter, very quickly, did away with compensation. It was, in fact, the Mike Sullivan situation and Vancouver's pursuit of it that ended the compensation regime or is cited as something that ended the compensation regime by, you know, insiders, people who are around the industry. They, they say that that was sort of the final straw. But, you, you know, anyway, respect. So Sullivan ends up in Pittsburgh. He re- he's a midseason replacement for Dan Bilesma. Right? It was Dan Bilesma. I'd have to double check. I'm pretty sure it was Bilesma, but check it for me while I continue on this rant. And he wins the cup that very first year, right? In, in 2016. And so the next year, I think he had a two-year deal. So he's going into the last year of his deal with a cup win in his back pocket. And he works the final year of his deal, the lame duck year. Now, 
Rutherford said he didn't believe in the concept of, of lame duck years and cited that as, as an example for why. But it's a little bit different when you're a team that's going to win the cup. It was Mike Johnston, by the way. Mike Johnston. Excuse me, right. Yeah. Dan Bosma, Mike Johnston. Yes, that's right. Of course. Because the Pittsburgh Penguins almost hired Willie Desjardins and then instead settled for Mike Johnston, who also, of course, has lengthy Vancouver connections, uh, having been an assistant coach for the Canucks. So, thank you. I appreciate that. I needed that context because 2016, Mike Sullivan takes over midway through the season, and the Pittsburgh Penguins beat the San Jose Sharks. Going into 16-17, Sullivan's in the last year of his deal. The Penguins eventually extend him during that season. But it's different when you're a team that's at the very mountaintop. Right, that's not just the team that just won the cup, but is probably going to win fifty games again and have a real shot at winning a cup again. Because at that point, if you're Mike Sullivan, it's a leverage play for you too. You're, you're super like, in demand. Oh boy, I am really establishing myself as a great coach here. Can I make six million dollars if I win another cup? Do I even want to talk extension on my end? It's just a very different dynamic. Additionally, for the Penguins in 2017, a team that like had made three first-round picks in the last eight years, right, and had Crosby and Malkin in their, you know, just approaching their 30s, there was only one goal. Everyone's interests are aligned from the get-go. Whether your coach is signed long-term or not, he's best served by winning 60 games in a Stanley Cup. And your organization's best served by making sure you deliver, in that all-in season, a Stanley Cup. So your interests are aligned. There's no issue. Where things get complicated, like, it's not about... The players tuning out a coach. It's not about that. The lame duck thing is not about that. What it's about is, are the interests of the organization aligned with the interests of middle management? And this is something that organizations throughout the business world do and do in a very conscientious way uh, with bonuses and all sorts of different devices that you experience in your day-to-day at work, uh, our dear listeners. Um, the, The way that it's done typically in hockey is you make sure a guy has term. You make sure a guy is incentivized to think about the organization's long-term future so that when you're eliminated from the playoffs, young guys get a shot. Um, Player development is on the menu, is something to be considered. And the Sullivan situation is completely different from what Boudreaux's situation would be if he were to return in Vancouver in that, you know, from the sounds of it, right, this club is willing to take a more circuitous route to contention, right? They're, They're not, they're not, going to rebuild or tear it down, clearly. But, you know, they're they're willing to make some unemotional decisions, something we'll get into on the other side. They're willing to consider dealing really good players for cap flexibility and bringing in younger players with upside. The target is young players. It's not a playoff berth. Um, well, that's going to be in stark contrast with Bruce Boudreaux's interests if he's working the last year of his deal. That's the situation that you get into where, like with Travis Green in his last year, you have a clash between the interests of middle management and the interests of the organization. By the way, it wasn't just Green's situation in 2021. You think about the last offseason that the Canucks just had and Jim Benning's overall job security. You think about how he was entering the last year of his deal when he traded a first-round pick for, for J.T. Miller, a deal that many in the industry saw as reckless, even though J.T. Miller ended up being a good player. The Canucks won, a pl- won, a, won the play-in series, and they ended up only giving up the 20th overall pick, which who cares, Right. There was a world where that pick was real good, and that would have been viewed far differently. So, again, this is something that the Canucks have consistently struggled with. I do not love the idea of going through it again, 
And I do think there's a material risk on that side. And I do think there's a material risk that they just lose Bruce Boudreaux. So with I'm not accepting this approach uncritically. I think I think it was a risky approach. But but I also think it was an approach that felt true to the type of team and the way that Rutherford and Alvin want their team to prepare and play. And at the end of the day, I think that's a breath of fresh air for a team that so often has been, you know, we function day to day. I will say, ideally, going into next season, you have a coach that you're really, really confident in being here for three, four, five years, right? You have the guy, you're like, this is this is who we want, building our culture, helping this young core of players take the, take the next step. This is the guy that reflects our ideas about how hockey should be played, and boom, we have him in place. That would be the ideal situation. Now, I've always said that I expect Boudreaux to be back on an extension, and one of the big reasons was because it would be so kind of politically difficult to move on from him. And this text comes in from Eastside Marco, who says, I'm okay with moving on from Bruce, but it's risky from management's perspective. The next guy better be good, or he's going to be in hot water. Tough shoes to fill, trying to better Bruce's record. Uh, and that's a that's I think that's a very fair point to bring up. But if Jim Rutherford is okay kind of spending some of his political capital on playing hardball with Bruce Boudreau, and he's willing to take that heat then I guess I have less of a problem with it. The other interesting thing and a point I've made a lot is what's the worst case scenario if you sign Bruce Boudreaux to an extension? And Jim Rutherford kind of alluded to that where he said making emotional decisions like this is the way you end up paying three or four coaches at once down the road. And I don't want to be in that situation. And I think, again, it's fair for Jim Rutherford to prioritize not being in that situation. And I want to read this one from Brandon in Vancouver as well, who says, I keep coming back to the thought that Bruce and Rutherford must have differing opinions on, on moving forward. Bruce wants to storm forward to achieve his ultimate goal, playoff success to round out his already impressive resume. The word is tweaks. Yeah, because he wants to keep pushing forward. He doesn't want to take any sort of step back. And Brandon says, Rutherford and team want to make sure they don't shoot themselves in the foot. Like Jim Benning did over the bubble playoff success. I have a feeling Bruce, there it is, might just become Bruce, there he goes. And I think that is a that is a factor here. And that comes back to putting the ball in Bruce Boudreaux's court, right? Saying, hey, look, here's the here's the game plan. If that works for you, okay, cool. If not, well, you have an out as well, and you have a chance to go uh, look at some other situations around the league. And this last one, an interesting question from Ian and Coquitlam, says, great talk, guys. Who do you think the Canucks' plan B is should Boudreaux leave? You have to figure they don't approach yesterday's news conference the way they do unless they have an idea of where they're going should Boudreaux walk. And I don't necessarily have a specific candidate in mind. I know Ricard Gromberg has been brought up a lot. I do think there's a lot of logic behind that. But just the underlying point there of you don't handle that press conference like you did yesterday unless you are willing to accept the risk of losing Bruce Boudreaux, right? And, and Rutherford said as much, talking to Satin Dan. He was like, yeah, there's a risk we could lose him to another team. That's all right. We can handle that risk. I'm not afraid of that risk. Clearly. <laughs> like, uh, uh, abundantly clear. Uh, because, again, I think there are there, – the material risks here are that you lose Boudreaux and that – or that Boudreaux comes back and his incentives or, or interests aren't aligned with the organization. For me, for me, by far, the more damaging one is the latter one, is the one where Boudreaux returns on a one-year deal and the club is looking to reset – and, and, you know, maybe take a step back and maybe work younger players in the lineup. And you've got a coach who's grinding out every possible point because he's auditioning for his next job and doesn't have that job security at hand. 
Like, what I really don't want to see is what we saw in 21, where the club's winning all these games after the playoffs have, e- have even have already begun, soaring their draft spot. They move from five to nine after the beginning of the playoffs, in part because they've got a head coach unsigned. And it's like, no, why? Why is this happening? Stop, please. Like, that's what I don't want to see. That's the, you know, um, that's like the unhealthy dynamic that has too often punctuated things in terms of how this organization functions. The, the you know, constant flow of palace intrigue. Like, I want to see something stable, focused, disciplined. I thought Rutherford articulated something that could be stable, focused, disciplined, and ambitious. Sign me up for that. But I also do think the risk that you run with bringing a lame duck coach back, you know, doesn't square with that for me. That was sort of that for me is the larger risk at hand, the larger sort of gunslinger risk that Rutherford took, um, you know, as he uh, as he gave his availability yesterday. Anyway, we'll get into more of this on the other yeah. side. But I do think that the, you know, I, the, I disagreed with him on a couple of things. One of them was I do think there is a material risk in having a lame duck coach. That is Bruce Boudreaux, particularly in the event that things aren't aligned in terms of vision for how this team wants to play and where they want to go, which from the sounds of it, you know, doesn't doesn't feel like groundless speculation no. to bring up and suggest. No, it certainly doesn't. And uh, 650, 650, just tons and tons of great texts pouring in. There's so much to get into from yesterday. Uh, we might have time to dive back a little bit into the Boudreaux stuff, but we got to talk about JT Miller as well. If we have time, we'd love to touch on the playoff action from around the league And the last Panthers? Night We're going to talk well. Panthers? Get that might, ding ready. We might have to talk. I waited. I waited until Faber wasn't paying attention just to just to mess with him. He's so unhappy with me. So keep your thoughts coming in. Six fifty, six fifty for the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, we will be back right after this. It's the Canucks Hour Sportsnet six fifty. Well, and I kind of disagree with you, but that's okay because we can work together on your hosting abilities um, here. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canucks Hour Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drantz here with you up until noon. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Up until 1 o'clock. Sorry, what am I saying? We go on the air at noon. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. A final word or final launching off point for a quick talk on the Bruce Boudreaux discussion. I'll give it to Lucas from Maple Ridge, who says, take it to the bank. Boudreaux is going to either Philly for a reunion with Fletcher or Vegas with McPhee in brackets if Vegas has an opening. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I find it hard to disagree with you, Lucas. Those are certainly the two ones I would be watching very, very closely if I was Bruce Boudreaux. Well, let's let's see how this first round exits. Right. Let's let's see how let's see who exits in the first round and where the coaching carousel stops. We've got a lot of weeks here yep. before June first. There's no rush. It, it, you know, if I was advising Bruce Boudreaux, which which is done, of course, by the legendary Gil Scott, who is his hate agent. You know, take your time, bud. Take your time. There is, you know, go golf. Let's let's see how the next two weeks play out in the first round. Let's see what opens up. Because there are some teams in this first round that I could see changing their coach. And you know, there are some opportunities that could open up that might be interesting. Uh, so I'm not going to handicap it and limit it to Philadelphia and and Vegas because of the connection 
that Boudreaux has that pass connection and the, and the success that he had coaching those teams in Minnesota for Fletcher and in Washington for McPhee. Um, you know, there are some teams in this playoff that I'd be one that I'd be curious to know, you know, how they feel uh, about Boudreaux. Uh, what about Dallas? It's an interesting one. Do you think? Do you think the uh, owner of a team who's got a uh, famous, well-publicized, um, you know, uh, rivalry with Canucks ownership might might find that to be a funny possible option? Should they make a change? One. That's an interesting one. I mean, I mean, I'm just saying, like that would be hilarious. I will say that's the funniest outcome. The one, yeah, the one that always gets brought up, and for good reason, because Boudreaux has made his his interest in the position known, which is the Toronto Maple Leafs. That one has never quite rang true to me. Uh, not that they – I can very much see them making a coaching change if they blow the one-game lead they have right now and bow out to the Tampa Bay Lightning <laughs> in round very one. Very likely. <laughs> <laughs> but it does not seem like Bruce Boudreaux would be the obvious direction, at least to me. So I I, I think it would take management change. Yeah, I, I I'm mean, not if, sure that one is going to materialize in the way a lot of people expect it to. criticism of this Canucks management group is, is you know, on, on sort of structure and details and – and what have you, um, you can imagine that current Leafs management would feel similarly. So I, I would I would expect that it would take management change. Also, you cannot watch the Maple Leafs swallow up the Tampa Bay power play the other day. Like, swallow it up. Like, the best pre-scouting job you'll ever see on, on the power play. Uh, you cannot watch that and think, oh boy, this is going to be on Keefe. <laughs> you can't, like, you can't tell me that. You, you just can't, especially with all the injuries that they've had. I think he's a pretty... I think he's a pretty impressive coach, to be honest with and you. And that would be a mistake. If Keith, if Keith shakes loose, that would be a mistake. Well, we talked about the stubbornness that Tampa has shown, right, with John Cooper totally. and with their core. And I think Kyle Dubas has shown a lot of that same stubbornness. And it wouldn't surprise me you if need in the event of another you know, catastrophic, disappointing loss, he decides to show uh, that same stubbornness in Toronto. I, I keep... Teasing that we're going to talk about zone exits, and I want to talk about zone okay, exits. Okay, quickly, now. but we got to talk about JT Miller. So we got to yeah, do We zone. will, we will. Okay, I'll yeah. do zone exits quick. So yeah. the moment Boudreaux came on board, the, the word that I started using constantly was punt and hunt, right? Which was this, this thing where the Canucks blue line is shoddily constructed. It's not good enough. I'm sorry, it's not. It's so obviously not, and it was so obviously not before the season, and this has been my most consistent talking point all year. And for a while... In the first 25 games, anyway, they still tried to play breakout hockey. They still tried to play connective hockey from one zone to the other. And they didn't really have the personnel for it. It didn't really work in terms of driving offense. And it probably didn't help either that none of their top offensive guns were playing particularly well. Uh, Pedersen and, and Besser sort of lead the charge there. But even JT Miller heated up in a totally different way in the latter half. Bo Horvat, Bo Horvat for sure. Tanner Pearson, yeah. on and on. So, but they tried. And one of the things that Boudreau did when he took over was he just stopped. Like, I remember one of the very first practices, you had Bradshaw working with Pullman and some of those guys, and they were just going high flippy into the neutral zone. And all of a sudden, the team just stopped even trying to control the play uh, from their back end out. They just, they, you know, I don't know that Pedersen got hit in stride with a pass from the defensive zone to the neutral zone all year. But he definitely didn't in the second half of the year. It was just go high flippy, push the battle outside the blue line, and go win it in the neutral zone. And you know what? The Canucks did pretty well with that, especially considering that I didn't think they had the personnel, the team speed, or the battle winners to make it work. Vancouver's forwards kind of embraced it, and they did. They punched above their weight in terms of making that work, in my opinion. So yesterday, Rutherford calls that out as something he doesn't 
particularly like, something he thinks is holding the team back. Well, you know, he said in his view, too, that the defensive personnel were capable of maybe doing a little bit more. I disagree with him there. I I, I don't know, and we've sort of heard this from Rutherford a, a couple times, that he doesn't see the defense the way I do. He sees it as something he can build off of, and oh boy, I... I that's one thing that I think will – that's my biggest material disagreement with Rutherford's analysis of this team. Most of the other stuff he says, I'm like, yep, nailed it, clear-eyed view, way to go. But when, when he talks about the caliber of the defense, I'm like, oh, boy, I, I they need some work, man. Well, and it was fascinating in that context, too, because, you know, you could have kind of – you could have tried to have it both ways and say, well, it's part coaching, it's part personnel, right? But no, it's, it's the personnel's fine. It was the coach. <laughs> Which, again, in the context of the other Boudreaux comments, or it was, he didn't say it was the coach. He said it was the system. But, it, you know, that comes back to the coaching. So it, yeah. it was another really interesting uh, comment about Boudreaux well, there. I would say I would say Boudreaux's abandonment, entire, complete abandonment of trying to exit the zone, to me, I saw that as a pretty rousing success, a, a smart way to marshal your resources um, to, to maximize how this team could perform to address a glaring deficiency in terms of the two-way IQ uh, of your blue line. And and the fact that it was sort of presented as a negative to me, um, you know, I, I don't know that I fully bought that line. Like, I, I that was just one area where I was like, yeah, you know what? I thought, I thought Boudreaux's tactical adjustment there made a ton of sense. Uh, I thought, you know, it worked way better than I would have imagined. I, I you know, I thought that worked under the guise of, of what we talked about with the Fox and the Hedgehog thing, like Boudreaux's overall aggressiveness, you know, he knows a couple of big things, and that was one of those big things he knew that worked deviously well. And I wouldn't have called it. I wouldn't have suggested it. I wouldn't have expected it. I would have disagreed with it if I'd been, you know, in a room where Boudreaux was like, why don't we just not control the puck at all? I would have been like, no, but it worked. And, and so credit to him. I, I sort of thought I sort of saw that as a positive, and I love that Punt and Hunt turned out to be a, a a bone of contention presented in the in the year end availabilities. That was good fun. Uh, it was excellent. It was it was uh, if, a, a reward for regular listeners of, of the Canucks <laughs> Hour, being uh, an Easter egg for them in that uh, final media availability. Yeah, exactly. I want to play this because it wasn't at the main press conference at Rogers Arena, but it it was uh, from Jim Rich, Rutherford. Richo and Sat did such a great job. They by did the a way. fantastic, such a good interview. Go listen to it. Online. I would say because there's some interesting things about philosophy, uh, more on the Boudreaux conversation, uh, philosophy about potentially hiring a rookie coach. Lots of interesting things to get into. But I thought the- I thought it was weird though that Dan asked him about espresso. That was a little much, but otherwise, just a tremendous <laughs> Dan, job. Reach does that in every interview. It's, it's just par <laughs> par for the course. Um, by the way, Faber, I might need you to key up the uh, Dan Riccio, John Marino uh, soundbite after Marino set up the game. John winner. Marino. <laughs> no, stop it. Oh my that was God. the first thing that popped into my head <laughs> when that goal happened last I, night. One, one last one last thing, one last bit of fun at the expense of Riccio. Um, I was once in an Uber, and uh, and this guy was talking about how much he loves uh, 650. He loves 650. Let's go. And, uh, and in particular, he was like, I love that Dan Riccio guy. And I was like, oh, yeah? And he was like, yeah. He's so funny. He's always saying, this is the people's show. And I, and I, and I start laughing to myself because I'm thinking, like, Dan is just doing the classic broadcaster thing of resetting. But this guy thought that it was, like, his funny catchphrase and, like, really enjoyed it in that context. I am the people. <laughs> and so I just uh, I loved oh. everything about that. Shout out to Reach. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's hear from Jim Rutherford on the subject of potentially extending JT Miller this summer. 
When you sign a player in their 30s and you sign them and you're put in a position you have to sign them long term, what you have to weigh in that decision is how much that player is going to give you in the first three years compared to the last three years. You know, at some point in time, there's going to be a decline in the player's play. Okay, but does he give you that much more in the first three years that offsets the last three years? Um, and and then when you're dealing with the player, like the example you're giving in J.T. Miller, he's coming off a career year. He's a very good player. Players like him are hard to find that can put up points, and they're strong, and they're physical, and things like that. But we're going to negotiate with his agent this off season, and we're going to negotiate in a way that that works for the Canucks, not only for now, but long-term. And if both sides can come to an agreement, then J.T. Miller will be here long-term. If the numbers uh, get out of whack, then we have to make a non-emotional decision and and make a tough decision that won't be popular with anybody and, and, and try to get assets that are going to help this franchise long term. That is Jim Rutherford yesterday on Canuck Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah explaining his view on the upcoming JT Miller extension negotiations. You sure he wasn't echoing ours? <gasps> I mean, <laughs> like, I, we, we has, okay, we've been talking about JT Miller and the trade market and the possibilities and all that for months now. And on a pretty regular basis, we get texts, and I'm not, I'm not trying to slam the people that text us in, but we get texts. Now, why are you guys talking about this? He's, he's their leading scorer, top 10 in the NHL. They're not going to trade him. Well, Jim Rutherford just laid out the, the perfect rationale and logic and analysis for why you might have to make the unemotional and potentially unpopular and potentially very difficult decision yeah. to trade him. In summary, high stakes, high risk deal. He's an exceptional player. Uh, you have to be careful with term for guys entering their 30s. And in the event that we can't come to a deal that makes sense, if the numbers get out of whack, then we're going to have to move him. And we're going to have to move him this summer. I mean, that that's basically the quick Coles notes of what he said. And he, it's impossible to disagree with any of that. That's dead on. And, you know, so so often when we talk about JT Miller, or talk about how JT Miller is likely to age, people start texting in, like, Hall of Fame-bound players who are still good in their 30s. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> like, that guy has 400 career goals, guys. Like that guy's declined too. It's just he's declined from a far higher place. You know, stop it. Stop it with those comps. The Miller thing is going to be fascinating to watch. I do think he's motivated to stay, potentially. I certainly think he's motivated to sign an extension this summer. I don't summer. think there's any question about that. No question. Bartlett left no, um, no sort of doubt about that following his interview on Donnie and Dolly. Although, so you remember yesterday I said, I, this is the Dolly Wall transcript, but I haven't heard the interview. Yes. Have, have you gone and listened to it since? Just clips. Okay. Go, go watch it because when he first says the thing about, are you willing to sign in Vancouver? There's like a six second pause. Like you can see Donnie's like about to be like, do we still have you? Bar- <laughs> do we still have you? Like you can see Donnie's gearing up to make sure they still have him. And then he's like, oh, you're, you're really putting me on the spot. And then he delivers the line. So, you know, being... <laughs> Being careful when when reading out Dolly Wall transcripts once again has has stood me well. Uh, Ricky, come on! But the <laughs> the overall the overall takeaway I got from that was yeah, I mean they want to sign a deal this year and they're open to staying. But 
you know, there was that six second pause too, which if you wanted to read into, you, you had yeah. some grounds to read into it. I'm sure they want to sign a deal this summer, but how much money and more than just AAV, how much term and security are you willing to leave on the table in order to make sure you sign a deal to stay in Vancouver? I think that more than anything, it, I, I'm sure Jim Rutherford would have much fewer qualms about paying you know, JT Miller, a very high AAV on a four-year extension. But oh, as you yeah, said, yeah, right, that's it's, not realistic. You know, I know that's not happening, though, right? So it's it's when you start to get into six, seven, you know, potentially even that eighth year that things become really, really problematic. And, and I don't see why you wouldn't get into that eight year considering the comps and considering the production. If I was in JT Miller's camp. And, and by the way, not the just expectation. This year, not just this year, the last three, right? Like that first season in Vancouver, he, he scored in an 85-point pace pr- prior to the pandemic, right? I mean... He's played center. He's played wing. He's played on the penalty kill. As as Rutherford laid out, right? He's physical. He has those, you know, old-timey intangibles that, that people love. So, you know, this is not a player who fits the template of, of one you'd expect them to get a hometown discount on. This, this yeah. is a home run cut for a player who's, you know, got a real opportunity to set his family up for generations. Yeah, I, I would still be shocked if it was like, you know, six years at seven million or something. Like, I, I just don't see how that that to me just screams shocked. leaving money so much money, tens of millions of dollars potentially on the table yeah. for JT Miller. But I also think that's kind of what it would take for it to make sense uh, from a Canucks perspective. So, well, I think I said on the show a while ago, five times seven, five. Yeah, I don't even think that gets you in the door. You know, like, no. I don't even think that's the It cover. shouldn't. That's not even that's not even cover charge to, to sit down at the table with Bartlett and hash it out. That's less than what Kevin Hayes got from the Flyers. Yeah. And, and come on. Like, I, I just don't see any way that gets it done. And, you know, look, those comments don't mean that JT Miller is destined to be traded this summer any more uh, than the comments about Bruce Boudreau mean he definitely won't be back uh, for the Canucks behind the bench. But the one thing that stuck out to me in that... The bo- dynamic, though, and, and you know what? Also, the contrast... With how they discussed Bo Horvat during the availability. And Brock Besser. And Brock Besser. But but the Besser thing, I mean, we went over this last week, right? Or was it last week or was it earlier this week? Last Who week. Knows? Last week. And, you know, the the comment that I had was the only actual sensible solution is to come to a to a deal. Because a trade doesn't make sense right now. Arbitration doesn't make sense right now. Qualifying him doesn't even make sense right now. The only thing qualifying the only thing that qualifying him makes any uh, more sense than is not qualifying him, right? It's one of those. The only solution is to hammer out a compromise in the next eight weeks. Like, this is it. And from the the sounds of it, they've sort of reached the that's, same conclusion. Yeah, that's what they're it, trying to do. It, and as they should. It's the only rational conclusion once you sort of map it out, game it out from all sides. I love that. I like that. I like that you can understand the hockey conversations. Like, you can hear echoes of a rational hockey conversation behind all of what they're presenting publicly and it feels like what they're presenting publicly is relatively matter of fact um it's beautiful there's no you know there's no sort of appeal to authority or what people don't understand and what the stats don't capture is how good a shape jt miller is and he'll be you know he'll bend the curve and we believe that he's going to be an outlier you know, he might be, he might be, but that's not what's grounding their thinking or, or how they're presenting their thinking to their fan base. And thank goodness. I think you'll build a lot of trust if you keep messaging to this market in that way. And the thing that stood out to me both about the Boudreaux comments and the Miller comments was his use of the word unemotional, which I think is really interesting, really important. And I think even drilling down into that a little bit, the specific emotion that they seem to be trying to avoid more than anything else is fear. 
right? Don't operate from a position of fear of losing a JT Miller. Don't operate from a position of fear of losing Bruce Boudreau. I think it's a very similar dynamic to what we saw with Tyler Mott. And in the lead up to the trade deadline, I said a lot, you can't be afraid of losing a player like Tyler Mott, right? You just can't operate. Oh my gosh, how are we possibly going to replace this guy? They didn't. And I think it's and, they, it's... and they did replace him on the waiver wire. Yeah. Now, it's much harder to kind of replace JT Miller. Yeah, and, and operate without fear when you're talking about a player like JT Miller, but it's that commitment to the unemotional decisions, and specifically, we're not going, we're going to trust ourselves to replace good players and find other talent, and we're not going to operate from a position of fear, even in really high stakes, high leverage situations like the JT Miller conversation. Uh, Okay, thanks to everyone who texted in today to the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. Great feedback, great discussion off the back of what uh, Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin had to say yesterday. We didn't really have a chance to touch on the playoffs, but enjoy the playoff action tonight, and we will get back into it tomorrow. The People's Show is up next, Sportsnet 650.